To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new podcast for you. So this week is a touch different. Uh, I do a Q&A with Ryan Muncy with a lot of the questions uh, poised towards me, but we just have an open dialect and an open conversation about these questions. I thought it was a great recording, and I wanted to play it on here for you guys. So uh, you can check out everything Ryan Muncy does. He's an incredible human. He does the Better Human Project is his podcast. Uh, he's also part of Fuel the Pursuit. Um, I've had him on the podcast before. We've had some great conversations. I've hunted with him. I really like the guy, and today is no different. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I want to thank my sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Everly Stock. I've been using Everly Stock for years now. They make a durable pack that packs the weight right, uh, and they have all these different pack systems for your different adventures. So uh, I like to use the Kite Pack for my day pack, and it, it it's a good pack that will cinch tight to my back that I can hunt with it on, but I can also carry enough gear for the day, even an overnight trip. And if I kill something, I can also pack it out with that pack. So I really like the kite pack. Uh, I use the, the destroyer pack for longer expedition packs. They also have their vapor series that comes on their mainframe that'll come with a 2,500 cubic inch bag, a 5,000 or a 7,500. I've used that for expedition trips as well. And uh, I also like their little big top, but they've got a bunch of different packs, a great price point, a great company. I like all those guys over there, including Glenn Eberly. Uh, if you're in the market for a new pack, make sure to check them out at Eberly Stock. I also want to thank Swagger Bipods. Uh, Swagger makes bipods and also shooting sticks, and they're some of the best in the business. They have all different heights from a bench rest all the way to a standing position, and they swivel on the top. So once you find your target, if that bull starts walking right, you can swivel to keep on that bull. Uh, you can also put the sticks out in front of you. It's good for shooting downhill, uphill, like all these shooting positions we get into out west. Uh, it's an absolute great company, great products. Uh, they make a quick detach on the bipod so you can carry them on your belt and then attach them to your rifle, or you can have them attached all the time. Uh, they also have some great shooting sticks if you like to go that route, but being an accurate shot is all about having a quality rest, and you definitely get that with Swagger. I also want to thank Black Ovis. Uh, I've been using Black Ovis bags now for the last couple hunts. I'm really impressed. They have absolutely everything you need for hunting the West or hunting anywhere across the U.S. or the, the, the world for that matter. Uh, they run a great site. Uh, you can put in the code ELEVATED10. will get you 10% off your order. That's huge, guys, to save 10%. Uh, they also have a point system where every point equals $1. So for every purchase, you get points. Uh, you can also get points for reviews, and then you can use those on future purchases. Uh, they've got a great arrow ID. They're hunters in there, a great company. If you're in the market for anything for this hunting season, go check out their site and uh, let me know what you think. BlackOvis.com. I also want to thank Camo Fire, one of the most addictive apps out there. They have 80 new hunting deals that come up every hour, every 24 hours, every day. Uh, they've got all the top name brands. You can save a pile off them as they come in for deep discounts, up to 70, 80% off on some of these discounts. So uh, if you're in the market for new gear and you can watch these things come up, check out that new app, Camo Fire. And over at Eastman's, you can check out that Mule Deer School. I'm really proud how that came out. Uh, me and Dan Bacar and Guy Eastman put that together. We're adding to it all the time. In fact, I'm filming stuff for it this season. You can check that out at Eastman's and just search Mule Deer Course, and uh, that'll pop up. Uh, I think it's um, for the price. I think you can cut your learning curve by years, uh, which is huge. I just wish they would have had something like this when I started. I definitely would have taken advantage of it. Uh, so make sure to check it out at the Mule Deer School. Um, also check out our beyond the grid videos. We got some good new ones dropping. 
Um, man, I just got word um, Dan Picard just shot a giant, which is really cool. I'm really happy for that guy. He's a great bow hunter. Uh, I don't think he's posted it anywhere. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, so the cat's out of the bag. I spilled it to you guys, but um, just harvested a great animal. So happy for that guy. Seeing a bunch of animals hit the deck, which is really fun right now. But check out everything we do over at Eastman's Beyond the Grid, uh, the Eastman's Hunting TV on the Outdoor Channel. Uh, and then you can also um, uh, check us out, um, Eastman Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Did I already say that? Uh, but that's, um, that's the intro. Let's get into this podcast. So it's a great one. It's a question and answer with Ryan Muncie. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Uh, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Well, Brian Barney, thank you so much for joining us, man. I'm uh, we've been talking already for quite a few minutes, and uh, I, like I told you, I could talk to you forever. Uh, I'm excited to throw some of these questions your way. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited as well. Yeah, uh, uh, I really enjoy talking to you, Ryan, and your insight on things. So yeah, like you say, uh, we probably should have hit record 15, 20 <laughs> minutes ago, but here we are. Well, one of the questions that I have for you. Um, so we threw this out to some of our inner circle members and, uh, and I've got about six or seven questions from those guys. And, and what's interesting is quite a few of them listen to your podcast and, uh, and they preface the question that they sent with, you know, Hey, I love Brian's podcast. I listen to it a lot. And so, um, you know, these are your listeners as much as they are our inner circle members. But, uh, one of these guys is an East coaster like me and, um, he hunts whitetail uh, here on the East Coast and then comes out West and hunts uh, both mule deer and elk. Um, and his question is, he, he actually has two really good questions, and, and I've got a third one for you based on this because of something you said earlier about being between arrows. Um, so his first question is, you know, I don't want to have to put a new tape strip on my site every time I change weights with my arrows, um, you know, basically saying he's not going to change arrow setup, um, you know, for three different times throughout the season. Right. So if I guess what he's looking for here is an all around arrow build for hunting whitetail, elk, mule deer out West East coast, you know, if, if you could only have one arrow set up, how would you do that? Yeah, so what a great question. And I'm the same way as I don't change arrows on the specific uh, critter that I'm targeting. I come around, I come up with a an all-around arrow that's going to work for everything. And the reason I do that is I spend so much time tuning in this bow and, and getting it dialed in, uh, making sure it's shooting good, uh, testing sight tapes, uh, shooting broadheads. And so I just don't have the time to, to reset up that bow for every hunt. So I do. I come up with a a, a mid-range arrow that's going to work for everything. So for me, you know, that encompasses antelope, mule deer, elk, bear, uh, even axis deer, which are really quick. And so I, I want a combination. So first off for weight of an arrow is the heavier an arrow, the better it's going to penetrate, the quieter it's going to be. But as you get a heavier arrow, you lose range forgiveness. And what that means is that arrow tends to drop off. And so as you get out at 50 yards and say, I guesstimate that animal at, at 52 or 53 yards, if I don't have range forgiveness, I miss that animal. If I do have range forgiveness in the you know, I really like it. I only have a 26 and a half inch draw length, so I don't get a ton of speed, but I really like around a three yard range forgiveness. So if I'm off by three yards, I still hit a kill shot on an elk, on a deer. And so my perfect weight for arrows that I've settled on after 25 years of shooting different critters and uh, really uh, taking note of penetration, taking note of aerodynamics, working with these arrows, I've kind of found the perfect mix for me to be like 425 to 475 right in there. And my arrows tend to land at about 450. And I really like that grain weight for penetration, noise on the bow, and also range forgiveness. And so that's kind of some of the, the grain weight that I shoot for. And then on my arrows, 
I always shoot a four fletch. A four fletch is going to give you more steering than a three fletch, but it's got the same aerodynamics as a three fletch. And what I mean by that is when you get wind drift, wind that comes from the side, your side profile on the fletching is the same whether it's a three fletch or a four fletch uh, because it's a sideways wind on that fletching. So it's the same profile, but a four fletch is going to steer your arrow a little bit better. And where that comes into play is broadheads. So uh, the bigger the broadhead, the more air it's going to move in the front of your arrow, the more unstable that arrow is going to be. Uh, so as I as I walk through, you know, different different broadheads, you know, I tend to go with an expandable. Uh, I you know I will use a fixed blade. Uh, I like a small fixed blade for elk uh, due to penetration. Is I really want to get an entrance and an exit on elk. Uh, so a big cut with an expandable is going to create more drag through that animal. I might not get that exit. So I'm more apt to use a fixed blade for elk, but I'll still use expandables for elk. And I've killed a bunch of them with it. I just use an expandable that's a little bit smaller that penetrates really well. So some of my favorite broadheads, uh, you know, I really like. Uh, there's a Gravedigger 2-blade, which is the most aerodynamic, expandable broadhead on the market. It just doesn't catch any wind out front, so it makes it for a real forgiving flight. So if I make any mistakes in my form, it kind of misses like a field point would miss. So if a field point misses by 3 inches, you know, this expandable is going to miss by 3 inches or 4 inches or right there in that same ballpark. Now, if I shoot an expandable and I make that same move where I'd miss by 3, 4 inches, uh, uh, a fixed blade is going to miss by five or six inches. It's just forgiveness. It just moves more air. And not that you can't tune a fixed blade to your setup and get them flying really well, but they're, they're just uh, more susceptible to wind drift. They're more susceptible to form airs. And so you just really got to make sure you're dialed on those. So I'm shooting a four fletch. Uh, I'm shooting a, a, a 450 grain arrow. It's really important to shoot the correct spine for your bow. So I spend a lot of time uh, really tuning that in. So right now I'm shooting a 340 spine, which uh, is the correct stiffness coming out of my bow. And if anything, I like my shafts a little bit on the stiff side as they seem to push uh, fixed blades a little bit better better. And as far as fixed blades, uh, I've been using the Evolution 4 blade. Uh, lately, it's a great head. Uh, also use the um, uh, Grim Reaper uh, three blade expandable. And so those are all great broadheads. And for me, it's more about accuracy than it is uh, shooting a devastating head. It's like you can hit them in the lungs, heart, or liver with any of those heads and you're going to get that animal. If you miss that, then your percentages go way down. And so for me, it's just about working with my accuracy. Uh, I work with broadheads in every single group leading up to season. And as it gets closer to season, uh, I'm almost shooting exclusively broadheads to make sure that they're flying right. But that's kind of my, my overall all around arrow setup. And even with 26 and a half inch draw, 70 pound bow, I get pass throughs on the majority of animals I shoot unless I hit that offside shoulder. So I'm getting pass throughs on elk at all different distances. I'm getting pass throughs on, on deer, on antelope, on bears. Uh, so I really get a good mix of penetration and a good mix of range forgiveness with that arrow. So uh, that's what really works good for me. All right, so there's so much in there. I think um, <laughs> I'm going to tell people that that send me follow up questions on that to just go back and listen to it like three times. <laughs> um, I, I think just from being with you last year on uh, a couple of days of a bear hunt, um, I, I believe that you were using that grave digger for bear because you want a little bit better blood trail, and just because you know you're you're, you're taking into consideration the the fur and you know that those details about hunting that specific animal? Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. It's all, I'll change that, that broadhead due to the, the specifics of the animal that I'm hunting. So yeah, as I talked about elk and using a smaller expandable or a smaller fixed blade for penetration on bear, they're really a smaller animal. And, and you're right. I'm trying to get a bigger cut that their fur seems to really soak up the blood. So when I'm hunting for bear, I'll put on a bigger expandable. So it's like an inch and five eighths cut four blades. So I can really open up a hole and get a good blood trail on those bears that isn't going to soak into that hair. So yeah, that is the one thing that I'll change for different species as I 
I work with all these broadheads throughout the year, and so you know I know their characteristics and how they fly. I know that they're going to be accurate, and so I will switch that up a little bit due to the to the species I'm hunting, which head I'm going to use. So you, you talked about <clears throat> as you get closer to the season, you're almost predominantly shooting broadheads with uh, for your practice. Um, I know you're shooting a lot of reps. So what's your sharpening? Uh, protocol look like to uh, make sure that those broadheads stay ready or or do you just have some that you don't use for target practice and you only use for hunting yeah so that's exactly right is i have um practice heads that i screw on that have the the aerodynamics or the profile of the head I'll be hunting with, but I don't shoot the exact head that I'm going to be hunting with. Um, you know, I spin it, make sure it's true, make sure the weight of the arrow is all good, but I have separate broadheads that I use for practice and then separate ones that I use for hunting. Okay. Um, and then, so it, it sounds like that range forgiveness is a, of more importance to you than the arrow weight or, or feet per second, um, which I think is, is going to be a shift in thought process for a lot of folks. Um, I'm wondering as you're working with a new bow, new arrow, you know, as, as you're learning that setup each year, how are you measuring or assessing that range forgiveness in your practice uh, to, to get to that point where you realize, okay, I've got about three yards forgiveness at 50, you know, what does that look like in practice for you? Yeah. So the, the, um, vitals of a whitetail or a mule deer are around eight inches tall, you know, so that gives me about four inches high or low for a kill shot and elk's about 12 inches, which gives me six inches high or low. And so basically standing at my effective range, my maximum effective range, or even inside that at 50 yards, I can just set my sight tape to 53 or set my tight sight tape to 47 and then measure that distance and make sure it's within that, that four inch per parameter. So that will tell me what my range forgiveness is. And I, you know, I usually always have an exact range on animals, but it's weird. A, a mule deer quartered away or uh, an animal quartered away. If you hit the butt of that animal, it's going to be different than where the vitals are at. And it can be a yard, uh, even, even two yards different than, than the range that I get on that animal. And so, yeah, I'm really trying to measure it that way by just um, setting my sight tape and being off by three yards, being off by four yards and then you're really measuring the distance that I'm missing by and then stepping it out even further and as you step out further you're going to get less range forgiveness but it's good to know those parameters and if you're in a space where you're shooting a super heavy arrow and you've only got a, a yard of range forgiveness you're going to make a lot of poor shots and you're going to uh, 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 miss that target because it's tough to get that exact range to the vitals or you get in range on that animal and he takes a step or two steps it's nice to know that your setup's still going to put it in the middle so that's how I'm kind of testing that range forgiveness to see how my bow's shooting. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so here's a, a follow-up question from that same uh, individual that, that's hunting East Coast and West Coast. Um, you know, because he lives on the East Coast, most of the bow shops here um, don't really. They, they, I'm trying to think of the right way to, to phrase this. Um, because a 75-yard shot out west is not outside of the realm of possibilities. Now I understand, you know, there's, there's an ethical, you know, argument about effective range, but you know, in the, on the East coast, you know, 35 yards is probably 80 to 90% of the shots that we're going to take on a whitetail. Right. Um, most of the bow shops here, um, at least the ones that this guy has found, um, aren't in the business of checking timing of cams and all those other finer details of maximizing bow's potential. Um, so he's thinking about setting up a custom bow shop and is looking for guidance on where to grab the knowledge of, um, you know, bow press setups and, and how to kind of become an expert, I guess, in setting up other people's bows for, you know, the, the, those who do hunt out West and, and want to kind of push the performance of their setup, uh, the way that you might, or, or anybody else who hunts out West. 
Yeah, so there's so much information out there nowadays uh, on YouTube and, and videos and then um, just just listening to different information out there and different theories on bows and on arrows. And so, you know, I think it's just immerse yourself in it, like uh, with YouTube videos and trying to learn. And then the best teacher is always experience. And so, you know, for me, I was able to find a trusted shop and I was able to hang out there and I was able to have them work on my bow, but say, hey, can I tie that in? Or, hey, what are you doing? here and why are you doing this and really trying to absorb that information and for me it's just been 20 years of going deep down the rabbit hole of archery and really learning you know from that you know quality bow shop and asking questions and just spending time with my bow in front of paper and and uh, tinkering with my bow a lot if something isn't right I mess with it I'll twist some strings see how it shoots there twist it back if I have to and get really comfortable with with moving things around on my bow um you know, I'm one of those guys that, you know, if, if my arrow isn't hitting where my sight is, I move my sight. I don't care if it was on yesterday or two days ago. Now, if I'm moving my sight every single day, I need to look at my setup and realize why things are moving. But for me, uh, I just move it so it shoots for me, but I just spend a lot of time working on it. And and I have a buddy that's in this same uh, vein of, of trying to learn everything about archery, but he's a handful of years behind me. And so I'm kind of the guy that he'll call when he has questions or when he has problems or uh, when he has self-doubt and go, hey, what about this? Is this right? Or, hey, my bow's doing this. I'm getting a lot of low and high hits. Like, what's what's the problem? And said, you know, so then we'll go through and we'll diagnose what the problem could be in, in different routes that he could take to fix it. And I had a great teacher in three-time Montana uh, a triple crown state champion. And so like a really good shooter that was a good buddy of mine. And so uh, I just immerse myself in indoor and in outdoor and 3d. And then I just let my ego go. And I ask a lot of questions and I try to figure out what those guys are doing with their setup. And throughout the years, I've been able to build this experience, you know, to where I really feel comfortable doing anything on my bow, problem solving, moving things around and, you know, got to the point where I start setting up my buddies' bows and working with them and things. And so I've just been able to gain that critical experience and that confidence to where archery isn't a black magic for me anymore. I understand the whys and, and the hows and what to move. And I understand the different bow makers and the different way they move things. Like there's, um, there's a lot that can be different between different bows. So, it, you know, it's crucial that you learn like uh, how to cam lean on a Hoyt to bring your tune inside or outside or on a Matthews how to use the the top hat shim kit to move your tune inside or outside so there is some different corks between manufacturers but really it's just diving deep down the rabbit hole learning as much as you can and then gaining that experience uh setting up bows and tinkering with them and really learning the ins and outs of them yeah, we had to do that with my Hoyt last year. The The top cam uh, was leaning one way, and uh, we had to do quite a bit of tinkering to, to get it, um, you know, shooting properly. Um, and it was funny, actually, until uh, I put that uh, – I, I had the cutter stabilizers on my setup like you do, and until I got that front bar on there um, – we couldn't actually get the paper tune and then the actual shot to replicate. Like, so we could get a bullet hole with paper and then I'd go to 20 yards and I'd be off by, you know, four or five inches. Um, and then once we got that front stabilizer on, we were able to get things to match up. So, um, I'm actually going to send him the, the bow shop that I was going to. I think it's actually maybe two or three hours away from him. He may be able to check that one out, but, um, you're right. I think, not just for archery, but for any of our pursuits, just fully immersing ourselves in it and, and learning everything we can about whatever it is that we're interested in and, and doing it for years is, it's not a shortcut, but it's, it's the secret, the not so secret secret to, you know, becoming the best that you can at, at anything. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ryan. That's spot on. Um, so you mentioned 3d shooting. Um, so one of the other questions we have is from one of your listeners who uh, is going to do his first 3D course this summer. Um, and uh, I think he said he's going to go to do it in Park City. He's curious uh, about the general feel of those types of events. Uh, are they laid back, a bunch of guys who just want to get better, or is it super competitive? 
it's really laid back and a supportive community. He's going to have a blast and there's nothing better that than you can do for your shooting than going to one of these three D's and, and, and you just join in. It's not super competitive. Everybody's in it uh, for themselves and have their own personal goals, but uh, nobody seems to be real competitive. Everybody seems to be supportive and wants to help. And, and I'd say, you know, you really practice going into those things, practice your angles, you know, practice your distance, make sure your bow, your sight tape uh, is dialed, make sure that you have confidence in your weapon to make those shots. And then it's going to challenge you. And it's really good, you know, not only for your shooting and executing shots on those 3D targets under pressure with guys standing around, uh, but it's also, it, it's going to test you mentally. Like, uh, you are going to miss some shots, you're going to break some arrows, and and you have to be able to get over that hump and not go into this this deep, dark hole of despair of archery, you know, and, and lose all confidence. And so you definitely don't want to do that, but you want to go into it uh, just with a good mindset. You want to be practiced up, you want to know your weapon inside and out, but you're going to meet some great supportive guys there and it's going to do nothing but up your archery game and and you're also probably going to build some lifelong friends as this community is such a great community of good people so there's no pressure you don't have to shoot any score uh you don't have to worry about uh, uh social pressure from guys i mean other than you do they are high pressure shots where you do have people standing over your shoulder watching you shoot on really difficult angled shots on 3d critters but there's just nothing better to tune up your shooting before season than those 3D shoots. So he's going to have a blast at it. Man, you said something in there that I think is is really valuable. Just the uh, getting used to shooting in front of other people. Um, I never would have imagined that that would have been a- an issue until the first time I did it. And um, for me, I actually um, the, I made a mistake, and then, like you said, when you when you make that mistake, not letting it compound into you know more mistakes, and and you know just you falling off of a cliff because of one like mental error, right? And so, you know, for me last year, uh, I had rolled my sight tape, uh, and then on the next target, I needed to go back to my original yardage, and I didn't roll my sight back. And so, you know, I thought I made a great shot and the arrow just went right over uh, the, the, tar- <laughs> the target's back. And I was like, what the heck happened, man? Like, I know that was perfect. And like, I mean, it, it would have been, but it was just, you know, it was, you know, eight inches high. And, uh, and so then I realized like, oh, it's like, that was so stupid. And I was so mad at myself and so embarrassed for such a stupid mistake that, you know, on the next shot, like I'm second guessing everything and those nerves are there and now I'm paying attention like I'm, uh, you know, oh my God, there's people watching and I got to not screw up. And, you know, to your point, like it, that is really valuable um, experience, right? To, to have to control um, because so many times in practice, the, the, the trick with practice is being able to replicate not just the mechanics of you know, uh, a steep angled shot or, or wind, but the internal chaos and duress of trying to execute when your heart's pounding and your mind is racing and you're thinking about all of these things, because, you know, that is very different. Even if you're practicing at home, uh, you know, and you do something to get your heart rate elevated, there's a big difference between your heart rate being elevated because of movement and your heart rate being elevated because of adrenaline. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought that up. And, and that kind of leads me to another question that I want to get you to talk about on here. Um, you know, I mentioned, you know, some of that, uh, that, that mental duress and, and so how quickly, you know, our confidence can kind of be eroded by, you know, simple mistakes. And, um, you mentioned that, that, that even happens to you, right. And, and you had talked to me last year about, you know, something similar. And that made a big impact on, on me. And I think that's something worth sharing for, for anybody that hears this, you know, we see you having success and, and, you know, filling your tag and you're getting a bear and you're getting an elk and and you're getting those mule deer every year. And, and what we don't see are, you know, and, and I know you do a great job of talking about it. You've done some podcast episodes where you talk about missing on a mule deer or, you know, some of those times where things don't go right, but it's really easy for the average hunter to 
forget how many stalks you have experienced before you've gotten to where you are now, right? We see Brian Barney in 2020 or 2022, the version of you that you are now. What we don't see is the you that was, you know, 15 years ago, you know, making the the mistakes of, of an inexperienced hunter or, you know, not knowing certain things, right? And so I think where I'm going with that is, you know, it, it would be great to get you to, you know, provide that reminder, you know, that we all need the reps, the experience, and um, that it's those failures and some of those heartbreaks and those mistakes that actually help us get better. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop talking and let you kind of take it from there. Yeah, uh, I, I love that personal experience of your shooting too, Ryan. That was a really good description of that. But yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we're all in different places in our journey. And I'm, you know, 20 years or more of, of totally committing myself to backcountry bow hunting because I love it so much. So you're right in these younger years, I, I, you know, I made a lot of these mistakes and, and the only reason I am the bow hunter I am now is because I've failed every way from Sunday, like every mistake that you can make, I've made it. And I probably made it twice. I try to learn from them, but sometimes I'm hard headed and it takes a couple times of making that mistake. And so really the, the journey of becoming consistently successful in in western hunting uh is really failing and learning from it you are gonna fail stocks you are gonna miss shots uh you're 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 gonna have failed hunts and it it really is like this this journey of of learning of not letting it get you down in this this mental despair and picking yourself up getting back out there and getting more experience and so yeah i i've missed gimme shots i've i've messed up stocks that are that are gimme stocks with the animal in the right position and just through that i've just made every mistake that you can make and so i learn from it and then that gets downloaded into my hard drive and then uh, I, I call it like my, um, uh, you know, my my instincts, my hunting instincts. It's it's all just downloaded information from years of hunting all different species in all different habitats, gaining all this this critical experience goes into my hard drive, and so then when I see an animal. You know, I'm able to to really trust what my mind's telling me, to trust my instincts, to to check the wind and see which direction it's going, to look at the approach and, and see if it's going to uh, – if I'm able to use the ungulation or, or use the topography to move in close. So I'm able to to look at it and analyze this stock in, in real time and, and then moving in – I know how much noise I can make. I know how slow I need to go or how quiet my footfalls need to be or I know what I can get away with if I've got a little bit of wind noise or if it's dead calm. And the only reason I know that is because I've made every mistake. And so it's uh, failure is a prerequisite in bow hunting. And not that it doesn't bug me when I miss a shot. It bugs me to my core. I put so much hard work, so much effort into it, but I'm still learning. I'm still improving and evolving and I'm not the finished product of Brian Barney that I can be and I know that and so I continue to have my nose to the grindstone continue working hard on every facet of my backcountry bow hunting and it's it's like one of the things I really love. It's like if you fall in love with the process of of training and working and self-improvement, like like that's where the enjoyment comes for me. And so I'm all in every season and, and I'm going to make mistakes every season. And I just try to learn from them and try to get better. And, and when I do miss, I, I try, you know, I learn from it. It bugs me, but eventually I got to just get over it and I've got to get back to hunting and trust my instincts and try not to make that mistake again. But yeah, the, the only reason why I'm at the place that I'm at in my journey is just because I've failed so much, but I've also gained so much of that critical experience that gets downloaded to my hard drive and then becomes my hunting instincts. And so now my instincts are really keen because I I've gained all this experience. So when I do get a chance at an animal, you know, I, I got, there's a pretty good uh, chance that I'm going to make a good stock on it. You know, it's not a hundred percent. I still fail stocks. Like the, the animals have great instincts out there. And so I'm still going to make mistakes. I'm still going to fail on stocks, but I give myself a, a better chance at harvesting that animal. And then I've, you know, I've been in these high pressure situations and I've made so many good archery shots that 
when I do get the chance to bend back the limbs, there's a good chance that arrow is going to center right in the vitals of that animal because I I know how to execute. I've made those mistakes. You know, I've I've misjudged yardage before, not got a good yard uh, uh, range on it, and so I know that this is a crucial part of my shot. I know that um, uh, you know shooting downhill. Uh, you know, I know that the distance is going to be longer than my rangefinder tells me, and I really need to sit on my shot and execute. You know, just all these little things with shooting, I've learned not to try to tuck arrows in too tight of windows. If there's branches around, it seems like it's a magnet for your arrows. So if there is branches around, you're probably going to hit one. And so I really wait for the right angle and wait for the right shot and try not to force my arrow in too tight a window because I've learned over the years, you know, that if I... I, I continue to play the game that shot that shot's going to present itself and that animal's going to give me a good broadside or a good quartering away in the open where I have a chance to make that shot so those are just some of the things that I've learned over the years just through failure and through experience and it's another one of those answers that has so much good stuff in it um so here's a this is a big question um one of your listeners is uh, is considering some some big life changes, and um, he says uh, he's heard on at least one of your podcasts where you've said that you've quit jobs for hunting in the past. And um, this is a guy that has a lot of uh, paid time off at his current job, but the level of staffing is such that it's hard to even use a week or or much less two of those weeks. Um, at one time without it becoming an issue. So even though he has the ability to take the days off, um, actually doing it, um, is, is almost impossible. Um, he says, I know Brian works hard and I do too. Being single, I want to build a life around something that I love hunting versus something that I can barely tolerate, you know, his specific job. Um, I would quit my current job and do a lot more contract work, uh, where I could control the schedule. What are Brian's thoughts on believing in yourself enough that such a situation would work? Um, I think about it from a reality standpoint and honestly do think I could make it happen, uh, but it's that first step that he's having trouble taking. Yeah, it's, it's always scary to leave the comfort of a of a paycheck or of a job that you that you're dialed in at like uh you know that you show up you know your paycheck's going to be there every 2 weeks and you count on it but you know we get one chance at life and it passes us up really quick. And I would just say to him, like, um, you know, I know for me, I'm a hard worker and I know that, that I'll make anything work. And, and, and I would just say that if you have confidence in it and you have a good plan, uh, you know, I would dive headfirst and do it. I would create the life that you want to live and do more sub work and have more free time to enjoy what you love to do, especially if your job's limiting you in that in that capacity or in that, uh, you know, that time off realm where you can really get out and go enjoy yourself. So those moves are way easier said than done. And I know it's a huge life change, but right now while you're single, you don't have a family counting on you. Uh, you know, hopefully you've got a, a little bit of savings or security there. You've got a plan moving forward, how you're going to, uh, be your own contractor and then you're going to schedule less work during hunting season, or at least schedule your time off. Uh, I would say make the move like a lot of the the biggest, scariest moves I've made in my life, like, like they just work out. I know I've got good work ethic. I know I'm intelligent or at least intelligent enough to be able to think through things and think through decisions. And I think that, that, that being scared or staying in the same job or staying in the same life because you're secure, I, I just don't think that's the answer. I think you've got to take risks and, and you've got to assess those risks and make sure that you've got a game plan moving forward, but create that life you want to live. We got one chance at it and it passes us by so quick. And, and if you make that change now, you know, it, it may take you a year or two of putting in hard work before you get to that place where you get that hunting time that you're talking about. You may have to build that, that contract, that new, that, that, that new position or build, you know, you're going to have to build it before you get all this free time. It's nothing is instant. And, and I would just say, make the move, take the leap, go do it. You'll figure it out. You're hard workers, smart, uh, you know your job field inside and out. You feel like you can get more contract work to fill your schedule. I, I, I would do it. I'd take the leap. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm laughing. I mean, I, I would too. And, and it's, I think it's just part of both of our personalities and, and I always feel a, a huge weight uh, and responsibility when, when asked questions like that. Um, you know, it's no small thing to, to tell somebody to, you know, quit their job and, and take that leap. Right. But it, it's funny that you meant the same way that I was going in, in my head, I'm thinking the same answer or, or my answer to the question is very similar to what you said. And, and the first thing that's going to come out of my mouth was the first thing that came out of your mouth. Like we get, we get one shot at this, you get one life, right? Why spend it doing something that you're not crazy about? Uh, something that in, in his words, he can barely tolerate. Um, to me, that's just no way to go through life. Um, and you know, I quit the only like air quotes, real job that I ever had as an adult in 2012, uh, when I decided to start my own gym. And it was funny, the, the boss that I had at that job, uh, I was having a conversation with him kind of telling him what I wanted to do. And, and I was kind of like this guy asking this question, kind of reluctant, hesitant, wasn't quite sure about taking that leap. And, you know, of all people, the advice came from my boss at the time. And, you know, he said, he's like, dude, we live paycheck to paycheck now. Like if you quit and do your own thing, maybe you're still going to live paycheck to paycheck, but at least you're doing your own thing and you're doing what you love. And I was like, Hmm, all right, I'm out, dude. Here's my two week notice. (laughs) 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 Um, but I I mean, and, and that's like, like you said, you know, I think your answer also tied back into what we talked about earlier, right? Where, you know, it's easy to, to look at maybe, again, somebody like you and say, hey, Brian can take, you know, however many weeks off a, a hunting season and do all these hunts. And, you know, the, the mistake that we might make in designing or, or, or you know, envisioning this move for ourselves is to think that we could be there immediately. And I, I like the fact that you highlighted, hey, like you may not be able to take all that time off in year one or year two, but you're moving in that direction and you're building the thing that you want and, and be patient. It may take some time. Um, but but I tend to agree with you. I think, you know, we only get one life and, you know, do with it what you absolutely want to do. Um, so, Let's let's shift back to some hunting specific questions. Um, so here's one on mule deer. Um, says uh, new to mule deer hunting, knows that you love those uh, high country remote mule deer hunts. Um, there's a lot of information on e scouting for elk, but not so much for mule deer. When you're planning those trips to especially places that you've never been. And you're you've got a high country, you know, mule deer tag that you're really excited about. What are you looking for when you're doing that e scouting uh, that tells you one area may be better than another uh, or, or may hold more deer? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. Uh, there isn't much information on e scouting mule deer, and e scouting it, it's to try to locate. Uh, areas of interest. It's it's not, I don't actually find bucks while I'm e-scouting. What I'm trying to find is I'm trying to find the country that's going to hold those bucks or likely country that's going to hold those bucks. But I, I'm looking at a lot of different factors. And so hunting pressure is a major factor in today's day and age. I'm looking around trailheads and I'm, I'm drawing uh, a two mile circle around any trailhead and I don't hunt inside those two miles. There's game animals there, but everybody drives to the trailhead and takes off. I know there's going to be high pr- uh, pressure in there, and I know the likelihood of finding a giant buck a couple miles from a trailhead, uh, you know, isn't very likely. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take all roads. I'm going to draw a mile around those roads. I'm not going to hunt around those roads as well. And then I'm looking at the trails. The the trails in the wilderness or in the backcountry are the highways. Uh, that's where people are going to go in and out. And I'll use these trails to get into country. But then I'm really looking for country that's off trails and and when I'm scouting areas, I'm really flying the range. And, and when I'm hunting high country mule deer, uh, those, those mule deer are going to be on the top third of the mountain. Uh, now if it's rock tops, they might go bed in those rock tops, but they need good feed. And so what I'm really looking for is bold basins. And I'm looking for where that, that rough, rugged rock tops, where that's going to meet the grass slopes or the alpine basins, where those deer are going to be able to get food. And so I really want to find like a, a country 
that that links to other pieces of country. And what I mean by that is I want to find a ridge line. You know, one of my favorite places to hunt is this ridge line that's got 50 different bold basins on the top of it. And all of them are great muley country above 10,000 feet. And every bold basin, you know, has the ability to to hold a bachelor herd of bucks. And then I'm going to work my way down this ridge line and grab vantage points at the right time and look in these bold basins. But really for e-scouting, I want to find likely habitat, likely places. I want to figure out where am I going to park my truck? Where am I going to hike into? What's the country I'm looking at? If I don't find bucks here, does this country link to more country? Is there a ridge line that gets me to another three basins or another five basins to look at? And so uh, really I'm looking for likely country. And a lot of this comes from just hunting a lot of mule deer. The more you hunt mule deer, the better you get at it. And the the more you you get good at finding bucky country while you're e-scouting. Again, it's one of those experience deals. And one of the best tools you can use, like when, when hunting high country mule deer, like scouting is crucial because those bucks have their red coats in the summertime, a real lax summertime attitude, so they show themselves throughout the day. And so it's really good to get familiar with the country you're hunting. And so if you can do a weekend scouting trip, and I know it's not all always possible coming from like the East Coast or even some of the units that I hunt are 12 hours away, but even showing up early to those hunts and getting up and then seeing the country. And then what I like to do is every mountain range is different. Uh, you, you don't know whether you're going to find bucks on the south side, north side, east slopes, west slopes, maybe all of the above. Every mountain range is different. But what you can do is once you start to find bucks and you find a bachelor herd is to take that information and then uh, transpose it to other places in the range. So you find a bold basin that faces the east side and you, it's got good cover. All of a sudden you see a bachelor herd a box. Well, then I'm going to go back and now I've got information to plug into my e-scouting. Now when I e-scout, I know that this basin held bucks. I'm trying to look for other likely spots that look like that inside the range that I think has potential to hide bucks. And you can even do it in real time, you know, even if you're not scouting, is to to figure out where you see bucks and then just look around you on your Onyx and look around at basins that face, face similar ways or basins that look similar to the one that you just found bucks or similar elevations. Uh, so I, I really use a lot of real time in my e-scouting too, as I'll be looking at my map constantly throughout the hunt, but that's a lot of what I'm looking for in these high country mule deer hunts. Man. Um, so that's really interesting stuff. Um, do you feel like you cover more ground on foot hunting mule deer as opposed to elk or is it maybe about the same? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's I think it's similar. Um I hunt I hunt pretty aggressive and I if I don't see what I'm looking for, I move on. And now I won't rule out a basin or rule out a spot in the middle of the day because the animals aren't active and that goes for elk or mule deer. Uh but if I'm there at the right times in that morning or night and I don't see what I'm looking for, I'm moving on to different country. I'm looking in different spots. And so I, I do hunt fairly aggressive and I cover country. And again, it's it's like using my assets that I have. I spend so much time being in good mountains shape that I can do a lot of miles and a lot of elevation. And so for me, if I don't find what I'm looking for, I'm not going to sit there and look for some uh, a mystical timber buck or something that doesn't <laughs> show himself. Like the big mule deer, they act like other mule deer, like they have to feed. And in fact, the bigger ones, you can make a case for they actually feed more to put on that antler size because they first have to build their body weight to such a point where they can put their extra nutrition into their antler growth. And so really, I find that the big bucks feed more than the smaller bucks uh, that they have to take more in. And so um, I'm just not looking for some phantom timber buck. And I know some guys do focus in a type of country. And there is a time of year when you get into those October seasons uh, after the, the summertime or after the the um, uh, early season, but before the rut, where those deer really tighten up their programs, they really keep to the shade. Uh, they they use smaller openings, little shoots and slides, and, and you may only have a, a small window to catch those deer. And 
and in those time frames, I am going to spend more time looking in uh, likely spots for mule deer where I might, you know, in the early season, I might do a, a morning vantage point. If I don't see what I want, I'm moving on. If I'm in that October season, I may do a morning and then do an evening in that spot, really dissect it, make sure that that buck's not hiding in there somewhere. But yeah, if I don't see what I'm looking for, I move on. I would say elk are so much more nomadic and they're easy to see that I, I probably end up covering more miles during elk than I do mule deer. I mean, as I first answered that question, I was thinking it's similar, but uh, elk are so nomadic and there's so much country that doesn't hold them that I end up covering a lot of ground when I'm elk hunting. So as I answer that question, I almost lean towards more miles for elk, but I do travel a lot of country for both species. Yeah. And I mean, as you were going through that answer, I mean, it reminded me of the strategy that we used last fall um, when we were looking for elk together and you know, maybe some of that was, was a different mode of transportation, but it was still cover as much ground as you can use glass, find animals. And if there's one there to make a play on, you make the play. If not, you just keep covering country until you find either animals or animals that you want to make that play on. And I mean, it just sounds like that's been an effective strategy for you, regardless of the critter that you're chasing. Yeah, that's spot on. Yep. You're absolutely right, Ryan. Um, so you mentioned some of the differences in, in how you might hunt mule deer throughout the day, September, October, does that change in November when they're rutting more and you may have an expectation of seeing them on their feet more throughout the day? Uh, it does. Um, I still, I, I try not to rule out country in the middle of the day as the mornings and, and afternoon evening is going to be the best movement for those deer, even during the rut. Uh, but yeah, I hunt throughout the day during the rut and I keep on my glass and I keep looking because you can find a buck at any time, but, uh, same goes for the rut. I'm, I'm going to cover country and I'm going to see those deer. And if I don't find the buck I'm looking for, I'm not going to sit on a group of does and wait for a buck to show up. Uh, I'm going to go out and go try to find them. And so during the rut, it it does seem like more of an all-day pursuit. And also uh, your light window is cut down as we're getting later into the season. So uh, there's not so much time in the middle of the day. The morning hunt extends and the afternoon hunt starts early. And so really I'm going all day long during the rut. I still try not to rule out country in the middle of the day, but I'm definitely spotting bucks and spotting animals in the middle of the day during the rut. Okay. Gotcha. Well, man, uh, this has been a blast, Brian. And I know, um, we blocked off about an hour and we're, we're at the end of that. So, um, like I said earlier, I want to be respectful of your time. Any, uh, you know, parting advice or, or anything that, you know, popped into your head that we didn't cover as we were going through all this. I mean, this is a ton of great information already. Gosh, a ton of great questions. I just always enjoy the conversation with you as well. Like I know it was question and answer, but uh, you also added some great insight and then personal experiences to this as well. And uh, I I just love that uh, you are all in on Western hunting, Ryan. It's like uh, the last handful of years, you're getting as much experience as you can get and you're getting that experience in different habitats, in different species. I know we were talking before the podcast you're taking on mule deer this year as you've been a elk fanatic the last few years so i finally got you talked into <laughs> hunting some mule deer but i just like that you're head first all in and that you're taking this skill set that you've built to be successful at all these different endeavors and now you're plugging it into to western hunting and so you're getting uh you're you're getting this expedited or you're getting this this process, but you're really speeding up the learning uh, uh, and the evolving in this process just with your all-in attitude and doing so many different hunts and then really thinking about it. Like uh, you you really um, – uh, you've got this analytical way uh, of looking at things and this um, uh, this this uh, where you try to find uh, the, the way moving forward or the best way to do things. And then you're downloading that into your hard drive. And so you're just turning into a heck of a Western hunter. And it's been really fun to watch your journey with this. And, and I would say uh, if you want to follow any path, I think Ryan's on the right one to becoming consistently successful at this Western hunting with a bow and arrow. And so, um, man, I think it's just getting that experience. It's getting out, it's making mistakes, it's learning from it and it's attacking each season, uh, trying to go find these adventures and, and really, 
enjoying the entire process of it. Like you, you, you don't want to fall in love with backcountry hunting for the wrong reasons. You want to fall in love with it for the right reasons. And, um, you know, sometimes we get pretty driven on our end goal, but, uh, really to be able to be out in an unnerved world and go have these amazing adventures in these, the most remote places in the lower 48, like we are the lucky ones here. So when you're on those big adventures, they don't always work out and, and, and you can't, you got to make sure that you're not just happy standing over a dead animal, that you're happy uh, in the chase and in the pursuit of it and in the, the training for it and the thinking about it. And this this passion is is so important for for us guys are so important for every human is to, to figure out what you really love in life and then put all your effort into it to be as good as you can be at it. And that to me is like one of the most fulfilling things in, in, in my life. And, and I know it's something that I just want to continue to do. So, uh, that, that would be my closing thoughts on the podcast, <laughs> man. Uh, it's, you get me fired up just listening to you say all those things. And I mean, I think, I think that's one of the reasons you and I have uh, you know, hit it off so well as we, we just, we share so much of the same thought process and, and, you know, that mindset around just going all in on the things that we're passionate about and, and trying to learn as much as we can. And I mean, I know we've said it several times already today, just fully immersing yourself in it and, you know, being in the arena and, and getting those reps and just doing the thing. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I appreciate that you recognize, you know, some of those things in me. And, and I mean, I definitely recognize those in you. And, and like I said, I think that's one of the reasons that we enjoy talking to each other and, and spending time together. And man, I, I am so excited to, to get back out there this year, as I know you are, and, and a lot of the folks listening are. So, uh, you're a hundred percent correct. We are the lucky ones to to get to go on these huge adventures and you know spend time in these inspiring and and, and sometimes intimidating uh, you know environments and and that's really you know that's what it's all about and and I just uh, I'm grateful that Mike introduced me to it so I've got to give him a big shout out too thank you for Mike for introducing me to uh, hunting beyond the the tree stand here on the East Coast. Yeah, I absolutely love that guy. Uh, Mike Lum is one of a kind. They broke the mold when they made that guy. He's so giving and uh, uh, so giving with information, too. And I hear it, like, even with, like, fishing guides around town, uh, that, that Mike is so willing to share information that he'll be in the parking lot and his competition is there, you know, with guide clients. And Mike hardly even knows the guy, but will come up and tell him, hey, they're hitting purple today or whatever the case is. Like, he's just such a nice, genuine guy. And so, yeah, you, you couldn't have a, a better guy to introduce you into Western hunting for sure. That guy's one of a kind. Yeah, I got really lucky, right? I got Mike and you and a couple other people, our buddy Brett. I mean, uh, yeah. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for uh, for doing this with us today and, and for all you do to, you know, share your passion and educate folks uh, on Western hunting and, and bow hunting. Absolutely. Anytime. Yep. Thank you, Ryan. Hey, guys. Man, that's a wrap. Uh, really fun conversation with Ryan. I really like that guy. Uh, all into uh, uh, bettering himself and um, uh, making the best choices for the future and really into Western hunting here. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate his friendship. Really appreciate him having me on and, and collecting these question and answers so we could uh, run through those for you guys. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, you can check out Ryan Muncy and everything he does through Fuel the Pursuit or the Better Human Project is his podcast. He does a great job with it. Uh, I also want to thank our sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Black Ovis. I want to thank Camo Fire, the Everly Stock, and Swagger. Uh, I also want to thank Eastman's for all their support. Um, you know, they, they really throw support at everything I do, including this podcast, the video work. Uh, I've had a couple articles come out in the last Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. Uh, we just pour our heart and soul into this to bring you guys the best Western hunting information and uh, really appreciate the support from Eastman's and the support from you guys. All right. Man, with that, um, yeah, I'm just hunting. It's the fall. 
Uh, this is just the funnest time of year. I'm just having a bunch of great adventures. I I actually struck out. I was out this morning and um, kind of got rained and fogged in, but uh, going to get back after it this afternoon. Uh, if you guys listened to the solo podcast last week, I talked about getting close to a couple elk and uh, uh, my my last couple of mule deer hunts. It's just been having a riot, and um, it's just getting rolling. Uh, hunting these elk during the rut is sure fun. So chasing those around. My moose season opened yesterday. Uh, so looking for a big bull moose. I didn't see any today, but looking in some good spots in just a matter of time before I turn one up. But, um, man, so fun. I mean, this is what we work for all season is to go on these adventures and, and reset. And I've got the support of my family, uh, super like too busy at work, but, uh, I also have the support of my workforce. So, um, yeah, getting some good days out and some good adventures, uh, just couldn't be more excited. So, uh, going to get this podcast out to you guys and get back after it here. So hopefully you'll see a big bull moose or a big bull elk come across your feed here shortly from, from me. So, um, Man, really happy for your guys' success as well. We've just built a great community here. I just can't tell you guys how much I appreciate your support, kind messages, uh, the shares, uh, reviews uh, on the podcast. You know, it really helps bring weight so I can continue to bring this to you each and every week. Oh, and I had a I had a fumble like a couple weeks ago. Um, I did that one with Clint Casper. I loaded it up, looked like everything was all good to go, and it never showed up on iTunes. Uh, so... I came back after the weekend. I was hunting, and then um, I reload. I I went through Apple. It had loaded there. It just wasn't showing on any of our platforms or on any of our phones. And so I, I had to reload it up. So if it came across your feed twice, I apologize. But I just wanted to get it out to you guys. I haven't missed a week in seven years, and so I didn't want to be that one that missed a week. So we'll just keep this thing rolling and keep getting you guys good recordings. So I uh, appreciate you guys. And uh, man, keep after him. It's hunting season. So go have some fun, have some adventure. And um, yeah, I'll check in with you guys next week.